0: Chapter five of the Dachet Diamonds this LibriVox recording is in the public domain the Dashay Diamonds by richard marsh chapter five in the bodega as mr Paxton walked away from the house in which the two ladies resided it was with the consciousness strong upon him that his position had not been made any easier by what he had said to the lady of his love not to speak of that lady's friend Before he had met Miss Strong he had been comparatively free—free, that is, to return the diamonds to their rightful owner. Now, it seemed to him, his hands were tied. He himself had tied them. He had practically committed himself to a course of action which could only point in one direction, and that an ugly one. "'What a fool I've been!' one is apt to tell oneself that sort of thing when the fact is already well established and also not only without intending to undo one's folly but even when one actually proposes to make it more as mr paxton did then he told himself frankly and with cutting scorn what a fool he had been and then proceeded to take what under similar circumstances seems to be a commonly accepted view of the situation "'assuring or endeavouring to assure himself "'that to pile folly on to folly "'until the height of it reached the mountain-tops "'and then to undo it "'would be easier than to take steps to undo it at once "'while it was still comparatively a little thing. "'It was perhaps this line of reasoning "'which induced Mr. Paxton to fancy himself in want of a drink. "'He turned into the bodega. "'He treated himself to a whisky and soda.' While he was consuming the fluid and abusing fate, someone touched him on the shoulder. Looking round, he found himself confronted by Mr. Lawrence and his friend, the German-American. Not only was their appearance wholly unexpected, but obviously the surprise was not a pleasant one. Mr. Paxton clutched at the edge of the bar, glaring at the two men as if they had been ghosts. "'Good evening, Mr. Paxton.' It was Mr. Lawrence who spoke in those quiet, level tones with which Miss Strong was familiar. To Mr. Paxton's lively imagination their very quietude seemed to convey a threat, and Mr. Lawrence kept those beautiful blue eyes of his fixed on Mr. Paxton's visage with a sustained persistence which, for some cause or other, that gentleman found himself incapable of bearing— He nodded, turned his face away, and picked up his glass. But to do Mr. Paxton justice he was very far from being a coward, nor when it came to the sticking point was his nerve at all likely to fail him. He realized instantly that he was in a very delicate situation, and one on which, curiously enough, he had not reckoned— But if Mr. Lawrence and his friends supposed that Mr. Paxton, even if taken by surprise, was a man who could in the long run be taken at an advantage, they were wrong. Mr. Paxton emptied his glass and replied to Mr. Lawrence, "'It's not a pleasant evening, is it? I think that up at the station you asked me to have a drink with you. Now perhaps you'll have one with me?' As he spoke, Mr. Paxton was conscious that the German-American was regarding him, if possible, even more intently than his friend. This was the man to whom he had taken an instinctive dislike. There was about the fellow a suggestion of something animal, of something almost eerie. He did not strike one as being a person with whom it would be wise to quarrel, but rather as an individual who would stick at nothing to gain his ends and who would be moved by no appeals for either sympathy or mercy. "'Would you mind stepping outside for a moment, Mr. Paxton?' "'Outside? Why? Mr. Paxton's air of innocence was admirably feigned. It might be that he was a better actor with a man than with a woman. "'There is something which I rather wish to say to you.' "'To me? What is it?' "'I would rather, if you don't mind, speak to you outside.' Mr. Paxton turned his back against the bar, facing Mr. Lawrence with a smile. "'Aren't we private enough in here? What is it you can have to say to me?' "'You know very well what it is I have to say to you. If you take my advice, you'll come outside.' Mr. Lawrence still spoke softly, but with a softness which, if one might put it so, had in it the suggestion of a scratch." a gleam came into his eyes which was scarcely a friendly gleam. The smile on Mr. Paxton's countenance broadened. "'I know. You are mistaken. I do not know. You are the merest acquaintance. I have never exchanged half a dozen words with you. What communication of a private nature you may have to make to me I have not the faintest notion. But whatever it is, I would rather you said it here.' Mr. Paxton's tones were, perhaps purposely, as loud as Mr. Lawrence's were soft. What he said must have been distinctly audible not only to those who were close to him, but also to those who were at a little distance. Especially did the high words seem audible to a shabby-looking fellow who was seated at a little table just in front of them, and wore his hat a good deal over his eyes, but who, in spite of that fact, seemed to keep a very keen eye on Mr. Paxton. Perceiving that his friend appeared to be slightly nonplussed by Mr. Paxton's manner, the German-American came a little forward, as if to his assistance. This was a really curious individual. As has been already mentioned, he was tall and thin, and in spite of his stoop, his height was accentuated by the fashion of his attire. He wore a long, straight black overcoat, so long that it reached almost to his ankles— it was wide enough to have admitted two of him he kept it buttoned high up to his chin his head was surmounted by a top-hat which could scarcely have been of english manufacture for not only was it a size or two too large for him but relatively it was almost as long as his overcoat thus since his hat came over his forehead and his overcoat came up to his chin not much of his physiognomy was visible and what was visible was not of a kind to make one long for more his complexion was of a dirty red his cheekbones were high and his cheeks were hollow they were covered with tiny bristles which gleamed in the light as he moved his head his eyes were small and black and beady and he had a trick of opening and shutting them as if they were constantly being focused his nose was long and thin and aquiline that aquiline which suggests a vulture his voluminous moustache was black one wondered if it owed that shade to nature but considerable though it was, it altogether failed to conceal his mouth, which, as the Irishman said, rolled right round his jaws. Indeed, it was of such astonishing dimensions that the surprise which one felt on first encountering it caused one momentarily to neglect to notice the practically entire absence of a chin. This pleasing-looking person, coming to Mr. Paxton, raised a long, lean forefinger— capped by what rather resembled a talon than a human finger-nail and crooked it in mr paxton's face and he said speaking with that pronounced german-american accent permit me my dear friend to ask of mr paxton just one question just one little question mr paxton what was the colour of your gladstone bag eh Mr. Paxton felt, as he regarded the speaker, that he was looking at what bore a stronger resemblance to some legendary evil creature than to a being of our common humanity. "'I fail to understand you, sir. "'And yet my question is a very simple one, a very simple one indeed. "'I ask you, what was the colour of your gladstone bag, eh?' "'My gladstone bag? "'Which gladstone bag?' THE GLADSTONE BAG THAT YOU BROUGHT WITH YOU IN THE TRAIN FROM TOWN, EH? Mr. Paxton gazed at his questioner with on his countenance an entire absence of any sort of comprehension. He turned to Mr. Lawrence. Is this a friend of yours? The pair looked at Mr. Paxton, then at each other, then back at Mr. Paxton, then again at each other. The German-American waggled his lean forefinger he is very difficult mr paxton very difficult indeed eh he understand nothing it is strange but it is like that sometimes eh mr lawrence interposed look here i'll be plain enough even for you mr paxton have you got my gladstone bag mr lawrence still spoke softly but as he put his question mr paxton was conscious that his eyes were fixed on him with a singular intentness and his friend's eyes, and the eyes of the man who half concealed them with his hat, and, unless he was mistaken, the eyes of another shabby individual who was seated at a second table between himself and the door. Indeed, he had a dim perception that sharp eyes were watching him from all over the spacious room, and that they waited for his words. Still he managed to retain very fair control over his presence of mind— "'Your Gladstone bag? I? What the deuce do you mean?' "'What, I say, have you got my Gladstone bag?' Mr. Paxton drew himself up. Something of menace came on to his face and into his eyes. His tone became hard and dry. "'Either I still altogether fail to understand you, Mr. Lawrence, or else I understand too much. Your question is such a singular one that I must ask you to explain what construction I am intended to place upon it.' the two men regarded each other steadily, eye to eye. It is possible that Mr. Paxton read more in Mr. Lawrence's glance than Mr. Lawrence read in his, for Mr. Paxton perceived quite clearly that, in spite of the man's seeming gentleness, on the little voyage on which he was setting forth, he would have to look out, at the very least, for squalls. The German-American broke the silence. "'Is it that Mr. Paxton has not yet opened the Gladstone Bag, and seen that a little exchange has taken place? Is that so, eh?' Mr. Paxton understood that the question was as a loophole through which he might escape. He might still rid himself of what already he dimly saw might turn out to be something worse than an old man of the sea upon his shoulders. But he deliberately declined to avail himself of the proffered chance.' On the contrary, by his reply, he burnt his boats, and so finally cut off his escape, at any rate in that direction. "'Opened it? Of course I opened it. I opened it directly I got in. I've no more idea of what you two men are talking about than the man in the moon.' Once more the friends exchanged glances, and again Mr. Lawrence asked a question— "'Mr. Paxton, I've a particular reason for asking, and I should therefore feel obliged if you will tell me what your bag was like.' "'Mr. Paxton never hesitated. He took his second fence in stride. "'Mine? It's a black bag, rather old, with my initials on one side, stuck pretty well all over with luggage labels. But why do you ask?' Again the two men's eyes met. Mr. Lawrence regarding the other with a glance which seemed as if it would have penetrated to his inmost soul. This time, however, Mr. Paxton's own eyes never wavered. He returned the other's look with every appearance of sang-froid. Mr. Lawrence's voice continued to be soft and gentle. "'You are sure that yours was not a new brown bag?' "'Sure. Of course I'm sure. It was black, and, as for being new—' Well it was seven or eight years old at least. Would you mind my having a look at it? What do you want to have a look at it for? I should esteem it a favour if you would permit me. Why should I? Again the two men's glances met. The German American spoke. Where are you stopping, Mr. Paxton, eh? Wheeling round, Mr. Paxton treated the inquirer to anything but an enlightening answer. "'What is that to do with you? Although a perfect stranger to me, and one to whom I would rather remain a stranger, you appear to take a degree of interest in my affairs which I can only characterize as impertinent.' "'It is not meant to be impertinent. Oh, dear, no! Oh, no, Mr. Paxton, eh?' Putting up his claw-like hand, the fellow began to rub it against his apology for a chin. Mr. Paxton turned his attention to Mr. Lawrence. It was a peculiarity of that gentleman's bearing that since his appearance on the scene he had never for a single instant removed his beautiful blue eyes from Mr. Paxton's countenance. "'You have asked me one or two curious questions without giving me any sort of explanation. Now perhaps you won't mind answering one or two for me. Have you lost a bag?' I can scarcely say that I have lost it. I am parted from it for a time. Mr. Paxton stared as if not comprehending. I trust that the parting may not be longer than you appear to anticipate. Was there anything in it of value? A few trifles, which I should not care to lose. Where, as you phrase it, did the parting take place? In the refreshment room at the central station, when you went out of it. Mr. Paxton flushed. It might have been a smart bit of acting, but it was a genuine flush. He looked at the soft-toned but sufficiently incisive speaker as if he would have liked to have knocked him down. Possibly, too, came very near to trying to do it, then seemed to remember himself, confining himself instead to language which was as harsh and as haughty as he could conveniently make it. That is not the first time you have dropped a similar insinuation, but it shall be the last. I do not wish to have a scene in a public place, but if you address me again I will call the attention of the attendants to you, and I will have you removed. So saying, Mr. Paxton, wheeling round on his heels, favoured the offender with a capital view of his back. To be frank, he hardly expected that his bombast furioso air would prove of much effect he had reason to think that mr lawrence was not the sort of person to allow himself to be cowed by such a very unsubstantial weapon as tall talk his surprise was therefore the greater when the words being scarcely out of his mouth the german-american touching his associate on the arm made to him some sort of a sign and without another word the two marched off together somewhat oddly as it seemed when they went out two or three other persons went out also but mr paxton particularly noticed that the man with the hat over his eyes who was seated at the little table remained behind suddenly appearing however to have all his faculties absorbed in a newspaper which had been lying hitherto neglected just in front of him mr paxton congratulated himself on the apparent effect which his words had had "'That's a good riddance, anyhow. "'I don't think that I'm of the sort that's easily bluffed, "'but the odds were against me, and, well, the stakes are high, very high.' "'As Mr. Paxton took off his hat to wipe his forehead, "'it almost seemed that his temperature was high as well as the stakes. "'He called for another whiskey and soda. "'As he sipped it, he inquired of himself "'how long it would be advisable for him to stop before taking his departure.' he had no desire to find the enterprising associates waiting for him in the street while he meditated some one addressed him from behind in precisely the same words which mr lawrence had originally used commonplace though they were as they reached his ears they seemed to give him a sort of thrill good evening mr paxton mr paxton turned round so quickly that some of the liquor which was in the glass that he was holding was thrown out upon the floor The speaker proved to be a rather short and thick-set man, with a stubbly grey beard and whiskers, and a pair of shrewd brown eyes. Mr. Paxton beheld him with as few signs of satisfaction as he had evinced on first beholding Mr. Lawrence. He tried to pass off his evident discomposure with a laugh. "'You! You're a pretty sort of fellow to startle a man like that.' "'Did I startle you?' WHEN A MAN'S DREAMING OF ANGELS, HE'S EASILY STARTLED. WHAT'S YOUR LIQUID? SCOTCH. COLD. WHO IS THAT YOU WERE TALKING TO JUST NOW? MR. PAXTON SHOT AT THE STRANGER A KEEN, INQUISITORIAL GLANCE. WHAT DO YOU MEAN? WEREN'T YOU TALKING TO SOMEBODY AS I CAME IN? TWO MEN, WEREN'T THERE? OH, YES, ONE OF THEM I NEVER MET IN MY LIFE BEFORE, AND I NEVER WANT TO MEET AGAIN. THE OTHER, THE YOUNGER, I WAS INTRODUCED TO YESTERDAY. THE YOUNGER, WHAT'S HIS NAME? LAWRENCE, DO YOU KNOW HIM? THE STRANGER APPEARED NOT TO NOTICE THE SECOND, HURRIED, ALMOST ANXIOUS LOOK WHICH MR. PAXTON CAST IN HIS DIRECTION. I FANCIED I DID, BUT I DON'T KNOW any ANYONE OF THE NAME OF LAWRENCE. I MUST HAVE BEEN WRONG. MR. PAXTON APPLIED HIMSELF TO HIS GLASS. IT APPEARED, HE TOLD HIMSELF, THAT HE WAS IN BAD LUCK'S WAY. Only one person could have been more unwelcome just at that moment than Mr. Lawrence had been, and that person had actually followed hard on Mr. Lawrence's heels. As is the way with men of his class who frequent the highways and the byways of great cities, Mr. Paxton had a very miscellaneous acquaintance. Among them were not a few officers of police he had rather prided himself on this fact as men of his sort are apt to do but now he almost wished that he had never been conscious that such a thing as a policeman existed in the world for there at the moment when he was least wanted standing at his side was one of the most famous of london detectives a man who was high in the confidence of the dignitaries at the yard, a man, too, with whom he had had one or two familiar passages, and whom he could certainly not treat with the same stand-off air with which he had treated Mr. Lawrence. He understood now why the associates had stood not on the order of their going. It was not fear of him, as in his conceit he had supposed, which had sped their heels, it was fear of John Ireland, gentlemen of mr lawrence's kidney were pretty sure to know a man of mr ireland's reputation at any rate by sight the office had been given him that a tech was in the neighbourhood and mr lawrence had taken himself away just in time as he hoped to escape recognition that that hope was vain was obvious from what john ireland had said in spite of his disclaiming any knowledge of a man named lawrence Mr. Paxton had little doubt that both men had been spotted. A wild impulse came to him. He seemed to be drifting each second into deeper and deeper waters. Why not take advantage of what might, after all, be another rope thrown out to him by chance? Why not make a clean breast of everything to Ireland? Why not go right before it was indeed too late?' "'Return her diamonds to the sorrowing duchess and make an end of his wild dreams of fortune. "'No, that he would—he could not do. At least, not yet. He had committed himself to Daisy, to Miss Wentworth. There was plenty of time. He could, if he chose, play the part of Harlequin, and with a touch of his magic wand at any time change the scene.' He even tried to flatter himself that he might play the part of an amateur detective and track the criminals on original and Fabian lines of his own, but self-flattery of that sort was too gross even for his digestion. Nice affair that of the Duchess of Datchet's diamonds. The glass almost dropped from Mr. Paxton's hand. The utterance of the words at that identical instant was, of course, but a coincidence— but it was a coincidence of a kind which made it extremely difficult for him to retain even a vestige of self-control. Fortunately, perhaps, Mr. Ireland appeared to be unconscious of his agitation. Putting his glass down on the bar-counter, he twisted it round and round by the stem. He tried to modulate his voice into a tone of complete indifference. "'The Duchess of Datchet's Diamonds, what do you mean?' "'Haven't you heard?' Mr. Paxton hesitated. He felt that it might be just as well not to feign too much innocence in dealing with John Ireland. "'Saw something about it as I came down in the train.' "'I thought you had. Came down from town?' "'Yes, just for the run.' "'Came in the same train with Mr. Lawrence?' "'I rather fancy I did.' "'He was in the next compartment to yours, wasn't he?' Mr. Ireland's manner was almost ostentatiously careless, and he seemed to be entirely occupied in the contents of his glass, but for some reason Mr. Paxton was beginning to feel more and more uncomfortable. Was he? I wasn't aware of it. I noticed him on the platform when the train got in. With his friend? Yes, the other man was with him. Went into the refreshment room with them, didn't you, and had a drink? Mr. Paxton turned and looked at the speaker. Mr. Ireland seemed, as it were, to studiously refrain from looking at him. Upon my word, Ireland, you seem to have kept a keen eye upon my movements. I came down by that train, too. You didn't appear to notice me. Mr. Paxton wished. He scarcely knew why, but he did wish that he had— He admitted that the detective had gone unrecognized, and there was a pause, broken by Mr. Ireland. I am inclined to think that I know where those diamonds are. Odd how conscience, or is it the want of experience, plays havoc with the nervous system of the amateur in crime. Ordinarily, Mr. Paxton was scarcely conscious that he had such things as nerves. He was about as cool an individual as you would be likely to meet but since lighting on those sparkling pebbles in somebody else's Gladstone bag, he had been one mass of nerves, and of exposed nerves, too. Like some substance which is in the heart of a thunderstorm, and which is peculiarly sensitive to the propinquity of electricity, he had been receiving a continual succession of shocks. When Mr. Ireland said in that unexpected and, as Mr. Paxton felt, uncalled-for fashion that he thought that he knew where those diamonds were, Mr. Paxton was the recipient of another shock upon the spot. Half a dozen times it had been with an effort that he had just succeeded in not betraying himself. He had to make another and a similar effort then. "'You think that you know where those diamonds are?' "'I do.' There was silence, then the officer of the law went on. Mr. Paxton wished within himself that he would not. "'You're a sporting man, Mr. Paxton. I wouldn't mind making a bet that they're not far off. There's a chance for you.' "'Oh!' "'It was not at all a sort of bet which Mr. Paxton was disposed to take, nor a kind of chance he relished. "'Thanks, but it's a thing about which you're likely to know more than I do.' "'I'm not betting. Are you on the job?' "'Half the yard is on the job already.' Silence once more. Then again Mr. Ireland. He stood holding his glass in his hand, twiddling it between his finger and thumb, and all his faculties seemed to be engaged in making an exhaustive examination of the liquor it contained. But Mr. Paxton almost felt as if his voice had been the voice of fate.' THE MAN WHO HAS THOSE DIAMONDS WILL FIND THAT THEY WON'T BE OF THE SLIGHTEST USE TO HIM. HE'LL FIND THAT THEY'LL BE AS DIFFICULT TO GET RID OF AS THE COHENOR. LIKE THE CHAP WHO STOLE THE Gainsborough, HE'LL FIND HIMSELF IN POSSESSION OF A WHITE ELEPHANT. EVERY DEALER OF REPUTATION IN EVERY PART OF THE WORLD WHO IS LIKELY TO DEAL IN SUCH THINGS KNOWS THE DASHAY DIAMONDS AS WELL AS, IF NOT BETTER THAN, THE DUKE HIMSELF. THE CHAP WHO HAS THEM WILL HAVE TO SELL THEM TO A FENCE. That fence will give him no more for them than if they were the commonest trumpery, and for this very good reason the fence will either have to lock them up and bequeath them to his great-grandson, on the off-chance of his having face enough to put them on the market, or else he will have to break them up and offer them to the trade as if they were the ordinary stones of commerce just turned up by the shovel if i were on the cross mr paxton i wouldn't have those sparklers if they were offered to me for nothing i should be able to get very little for them the odds are they would quad me and you may take this from me that for the man i don't care who he is first offender or not who is found with the duchess of dashay's diamonds in his possession it's a lifer mr paxton was silent for a moment or two after the detective had ceased He took another drink. It might have been that his lips stood in need of being moistened. You think it would be a lifer, do you? I'm certain. After all the jewel thieves who have got clean off, if a judge does get this gentleman in front of him, which I think he will, he'll make it as hot for him as ever he can. I shouldn't like to see you in such a position, Mr. Paxton, I assure you. "'Again Mr. Paxton raised his glass to his lips. "'I hope that you won't, Mr. Ireland, with all my heart. "'I hope I shan't, Mr. Paxton. "'You know perhaps as well as I do "'it's an awful position for a man to stand in. "'What did you say your friend's name was, Lawrence? "'It's queer that I should have thought that I knew his face, "'and yet I don't think that I ever knew any one of that name.' By the way, I fancy that you once told me that you didn't mind having a try at anything in which there was money to be made. Now, if you could give me a hint as to the whereabouts of the Duchess's diamonds, you might find that there was money in that. As he emptied his glass, Mr. Paxton looked the detective in the face. I wish I could, John. I'd be on for the deal. Only I'm sorry that I can't. End of Chapter 5